When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Welcome, fight fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast. And today, I'm really honoured to bring to you a true boxing historian, a true martyr of the sport, someone who has wrote a total of six books and is here to tell us all about them books and is here to tell us about Cleveland's boxing history, known for many great fighters over the years. I'd like to welcome Jerry Fitch onto the show. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me. Well, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Um, Cleveland boxing, you know, I I, uh, I was very fortunate. I, you know, during the um, 1950s when boxing started being saturated on television, um, I don't know when we got our first television. I, I believe maybe 1951, somewhere around there. But that's around the time when there was the Friday night fights and the, and the Saturday night fights and then the Wednesday night fights. And they were, <laughs> and, and, and the irony was I was very young. And um, so naturally I was in school and I normally wasn't able to stay up late, but of course on Fridays or Saturdays, it was different. Now my father was not a big boxing fan. Um, he was not a big boxing fan yet. There wasn't a lot of things on television those early days. There was a few local shows. There was, um, you know, there was boxing and, and, and wrestling and a few other things. So it, it wasn't like now where you could select hundreds of channels and, you know, watch whatever. So my dad did watch some boxing. And um, what happened was uh, I saw snippets of fights. Uh, you know, I, I was very young. I, I didn't know much about it, but... Uh, um, one day we were watching the TV and, um, 
ironically, my father says to me, you see that guy there? Uh, which one? And he pointed. He said, uh, during the war, when Joe Lewis was in the Army, you know, I must have known who Joe Lewis was. I must have heard my father or, you know, my grandfather's or somebody talking about, you know, the greats. Because at that stage in my life, this was coming up on uh, uh, around the time, probably just before Marciano won the title. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be 75 years old in October, so that'll give you a little focal point. So anyhow, uh, Jimmy Bivens was fighting, and I don't even remember who it was. But I saw, I saw him, and then, and then the next thing I saw on one of these fights was uh, Kid Gavilan fighting Chuck Davey. And uh, the one thing I remember about that was one guy was black and one guy was white, but Davey ended up outside the, literally through the ropes in, in one particular part of that fight there. So I remembered that. So fast forward a few years, we moved from the west side of Cleveland to a suburb, not, not far away at all. In fact, we were just across the border. It was a, uh, a suburb called Parma kind of the same name as Parma in Italy. Um, and we moved there in 1956. And um, in 1957, one of my new friends um, and his older brother, um, they were going to a fight at the Cleveland Arena. And um, somehow they had an extra ticket and, you know, that was probably the furthest thing from my mind going to watch a fight at that time, even though I had a little bit of interest. So long story short, I went with them and it turned out to be Carmen Basilio defending his welterweight title against Johnny Saxton, the, the, uh, their third fight. And, uh, we, our seats were, you know, way up. It wasn't like we were sitting ringside, but the fight was over in two rounds, but that kind of got me hooked. I mean, there I was I, at that age. I wasn't, I was, um, Let's see, that fight was in February of 57, so uh, I was coming up on uh, 11 years old. Uh, I was 10 years old. Well, anyhow, that got me hooked. Now, Cleveland boxing, the history of Cleveland boxing, um, we're kind of like most cities in, in the United States, probably in even different parts of the world, during a period of time where boxing was really frowned upon. In fact, uh, in, uh, in 1830, it was banned um, here locally and, and most places. And so you had uh, fights that they they had on the sneak, as they called it. Um, in Cleveland, uh, we were a big manufacturing city and, and went steel mills and that. And, and down by the uh, lake, there's a place called Whiskey Island. Uh, it's an area where the ore, ore boats would unload the ore that would be taken down to the steel mills to make steel. And so uh, fights would go on there and, and they'd have lookouts and then the sheriff would come and people would go running and everybody would scramble. And, uh, this is how it went. And then there was a, a, a there was a way they got around it. Uh, they had, uh, some fights in private clubs, um, and, in private gyms, you know, uh, the city didn't, uh, stop them from that, but basically the, the launch of legitimate boxing, even though we had some, you know, we had, uh, Kid McCoy and Joe Gans came here and, and put on an exhibition. There was there were some big time fighters came here, but the actual launch of real legitimate boxing, where you didn't have to run around hiding from the, the law, so to speak, was 
1923, the uh, city administration, I don't think we had a mayor then, I think it was an, another title, but they allowed amateur boxing. Uh, and we had a uh, an auditorium called Cleveland Public Hall, which still exists, uh, seats about 10,000 or so. It's It's been used for numerous things, including the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies and so forth. But they started amateur fights there, and 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 uh, one of the uh, one of the first Clevelanders of note that boxed there as an amateur was Johnny Risco, um, who went on to fame, and he was famous and infamous in a lot of ways. But uh, in in the pros, in 1924, they finally caved in and you know allowed uh, you know legitimate boxing. So uh, you know it went from there, and they would have it. We had a lot of different uh, venues then. We had Cleveland Public Hall, we had a uh, couple armories, the Gray's Armory, which still exists, uh, Central Armory, we had uh, a couple other places which are long gone, um, and then in 1931, the 20s were going along, we had Johnny Kilbane, you know, we had we had some really good fighters here locally, and, and Johnny was the most famous, of course, he held the featherweight twi- title for, you know, 11 years, Um by the 1931, they built Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which was uh, the rumor was that they were building this to try to to get the uh, 1932 Olympics to come to Cleveland. But that's not true, because in 1928, it turned out Los Angeles had already been granted the Olympics for 1932. So that was just a one of these urban legends, as they call it, you know, <laughs> but they built it. And then uh, the first event there ever July 3rd was Max Schmeling um, defended his world title against Young Stribling and won by a 15-round knockout. And on the undercard, Johnny Risco, he was a preliminary, preliminary fighter. Then he, uh, he he fought an eight-rounder and, and defeated Tony Galeno, two-ton Tony. So that stadium was there for big fights, really big fights. Like during World War II, they had um, – uh, they called it Bombers for MacArthur or General MacArthur, you know. So they had some big fight shows there. You know, Jimmy Bivens and Archie Moore and Joey Maxim, and they brought in a lot of fighters. Um, and that stadium stayed there. It, it's actually sat, uh, I think the seating capacity was over 80,000. Uh, it sat there until 1995. It was knocked down and they built a new stadium for football, our football, gridiron football, not soccer. Um, but the biggest influence to me and the biggest success story in Cleveland boxing, I mean, we had early fighters in the twenties and and then when they started the golden gloves, we had Olympic champs. We had a couple Olympic champs. We had, um, 1932, Carmen Barth won the middleweight title out in Los Angeles. 1952, Nate Brooks won in in, uh, a flyweight in uh, Helsinki. And we had some others that got, uh, Jackie Wilson got robbed. He only lost one fight. Uh, and that, and that, uh, was in the, uh, 36 Olympics. He lost, uh, I forget who he lost to, but he, 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 he won every fight. I think 51 out of 52. So he got a silver medal. We had a couple others that did bronze medals and the golden gloves, which were really big in New York and Chicago and Cleveland. So the Cleveland fighters would go, if they won Cleveland, they would go to Chicago. Uh, usually it was the uh, 
National Gold Gloves there, and then they also had the uh, National AAU, uh, which some of them went on from Cleveland to Chicago, and then to, well, like when Jimmy Bivens fought in 39 for the uh, National AAU, that was in San Francisco. They had a different place, St. Louis and different cities, but Golden Gloves were so big in those days that uh, down at Public Hall, they would have three rings set up. There'd be three fights going on at the same time. And these guys would fight, you know, to the wee hours of the morning. They would, uh, sometimes they had to fight more than once a night. But it was so popular that even up until the 50s, um, we had a trainer here in Cleveland called Johnny Papke, um, not related to Billy Papke, but he was a professional fighter. He had a few fights. In fact, he actually fought Harry Greb. Uh, Johnny was really famous for amateur fighters. And later years, he ended up uh, working the corners of many pros. He, uh, he, he worked with Jimmy Bivens. He worked with Joey Maxim. He worked with um, Jimmy Reeves, Chuck Hunter, Georgie Pace. I mean, uh, most of the prominent fighters in the professional ranks out of Cleveland, he tra- Lloyd Marshall, he, um, he trained them at one time or another or, or worked their corners at the very least. But as an amateur trainer, and I believe it was 1952, now we had a lot of boxing gyms. Now, if you ask me how many gyms we have now, I'm not even sure. I mean, none of the old ones are around, and there's only a couple that uh, fighting is really dead as a doornail here. Um, the Golden Gloves, here's an example. They, they have a hard time getting 100 kids to, to go out for the gloves. Now, in 1952, Johnny Papke, his gym, just his gym alone, he entered over 100 kids from his gym. That's not counting all the other ones. We had a lot of gyms going on, the old Angle Gym and the, and, uh, uh, the 55th Street Gym and whatever. But um, So amateur fighting was really big. And so it, as, as things went into you know the late 30s and into the 40s, a lot of really good fighters came out of those Golden Gloves, including Bivens and Maxim and Hunter and Reeves and 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 Georgie Pace and Georgie Toy and and Eddie Murata and Tommy Salem. These are a lot of names you won't know, but they all went on to have some excellent pro careers and some decent pro careers. Um, but the thing that really uh, I think holds the 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 candle as far as the best venue ever was the Cleveland Arena. Now, the Cleveland Arena was built in um, November of 1937 for a million and a half, which I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. The guy that built it, it was for his ice hockey team. Uh, They were playing at a small arena on the east side of Cleveland at the time. So they built this and it sat just under 10,000 for hockey. In later years, when we got basketball, it sat 11,000. But they had crowds as large as uh, 14,000 for a couple of Jimmy Bivens fights there. And uh, the arena was there from 1937 till the last fight there was November 1973. And in 1974, it closed down totally and they knocked it down. And we've had some fights since then, you know, at, at, at the old public hall. And, and uh, we had a coliseum. It's called the Richfield Coliseum out between Akron and Cleveland, Ohio, where Don King had uh, 
Yeah, that's where Jerry Cotsia won the title from Michael Dokes. And he and he also had um he had a couple big fights. I mean, you know, I had Roberto Duran on his comeback fight here against uh, Richie Gonzalez, uh, Nino Gonzalez. I'm sorry, uh, but the arena from 37 to the last fight in 73 had uh, 162 shows total, over 900 individual fights. Now that figure would even be greater, except. Starting in the late 50s and into 1960, there was just a hand. And boxing was really dying. I, a lot of people said it was because of the uh, oversaturation of TV. You know, uh, you put it in, in simple terms, people could sit at home on their couch and watch uh, really good fights and, uh, you know, not have to pay a dime as opposed to going down to arena, you know, uh, Personally, as a guy that got involved in boxing real early and went to a lot of fights, nothing beats, especially when I was covering fights. You know, I mean, sitting ringside watching these fights that you can't get that feeling on on a, on a television. But anyhow, um, the fights there started dwindling in the, in the late 50s and early 60s. And um, there wasn't hardly any fights. And then in late 1969... A gentleman named Don Elbaum from Erie, PA, started promoting there. Uh, for those that don't know who Don Elbaum is, he he is he's still promoting. Um, he started very young, um, and he 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 ended up actually he's the man that gets credit. Now you can take this two ways. We won't get into a, a big topic here about Don King, but he's the one that got Don King started. In November 1973, the arena had no fights since um, 72. All of 73 had had none until November. Don King, who had just gotten out of prison a short time before, put on a fight card there uh, between Jeff Merritt, who was one of his fighters, and Ron Stander. Now, it said Don King promotion, but really it was Don Elbaum. Don King didn't know anything about putting on fights. And so Don Elbaum was a matchmaker and he lined up everything. And it just was Don King's name on the, on the uh, paperwork. Um, and that was the last fight there. But from late 69, Don Elbaum put on um, three fight cards at the arena. The first one being his fighter from Akron, Doyle Baird, uh, who ended up being a, a real decent middleweight. Uh, had some good fights. In fact, he held uh, Nino Benvenuti to a draw when Benvenuti was champ, but it was a non-title fight. And um, it was between uh, Doyle Baird and Don Fulmer, Gene's brother. Hmm. But uh, 70, 71, 72, by the time Don Elbaum was done here in Cleveland, he had promoted um, 20, I think it was 26 fight cards. Kind of was a a revival for that brief period of time. Um me being in my early 20s then, that's when I started writing, actually. I uh, I got in touch with the editor at Boxing Illustrated Magazine, uh, Lou Eskin, his name was, uh, and um, asked if I could send in fight results, you know. So I started out doing that, just sending in, you know, fight results. And um, anyhow, long story short, that, that kind of blossomed. I actually wrote for London's Boxing News from... 73, I think my last article might have been in there 
I want to say 76, 77. Uh, it's when uh, uh, Graham Houston was the editor then. In fact, the day I... The day I got announced as starting to write for them in 1973, on the very same day, Harry Moen started there, and he ended up eventually being the editor, and, you know, he's no longer with us. But uh, I would have in, uh, oh, probably twice a month I'd have an article in there. And then I went to all kinds of magazines. I wrote for Ring. I wrote for Boxing Digest. I wrote for Boxing World. I, um, uh, a couple others that didn't last long, like World Champion I wrote for uh, another uh, South Africa boxing world, which ended up being called just Boxing World. And I wrote for another uh, magazine in England briefly, which is called Boxing. I don't think it lasted real long. I did a few articles for them. But that's before I even thought about writing a book. I mean, um, you mentioned about my books. Um, I actually wrote that my first book was Cleveland's Greatest Fighters of All Time in 2002 by Arcadia Publishing. But I actually wrote two versions of that, smaller versions, one in 1980. Uh, you'll never find it. Well, you might find it on eBay. Um, and uh, a second version, but these were literally taken to a local printer, you know, printed off a few copies. And, you know, this uh, Cleveland's uh, Greatest Fighters of All Time. I don't know if you can see that. You see it, Nephilite? Um This basically tells the history of, of Cleveland boxing, just, you know, how it started. It tells the whole thing about the 1800s, who came here. And then it goes into the, you know, what I consider the, the greatest fighters in, in Cleveland history uh, in no particular order. And, and no, you know, those would be um, Johnny Kilbane, uh, Carl Tremaine and Jack Kid Wolf, um, Lloyd Marshall, Jimmy Bibbins, Joey Maxim, Paul Perone, Georgie Pace. Um, for a lot of reasons, they were the, the best ones. But then it has a lot of great pictures and bios on, uh, you know, a lot of other fighters that ended up being contenders. Uh, when I get into conversations with, with some of these younger people on, on Facebook, I have to remember who I'm talking to. Because <laughs> you get a lot of them in, in, that, that think they know it all. And, and I'm happy that they're passionate about things, but it's, they don't, when I try to reason with them, it's, it's, it's useless. So I'm kind of backing away because for example, I'll say so-and-so they'll say not mention names now, but so-and-so is like one of the greatest, he's the greatest of all time, you know? And then I'll say, well, maybe he's great for his era, but you know, and I try to explain back then it's not, it's not just a question. It's not just some old guy meaning me, living in his past. I explained the, 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 the logistics of boxing back then, how many fighters there were, how hard it was. I mean, guys like even the great ones like Willie Pep and Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, these guys would have 100 fights or more and wouldn't get a shot. Jimmy Bivens never got a shot. Yeah. But, I mean, there were so many. Jimmy used to Jimmy Bivens used to tell me um, when he was fighting, you had the top ten. You know, he always had the top 10 rankings for, and there was only eight weight classes most of that time. And eventually they had a junior middle weight or, but I mean, it was mostly eight. And you, so you had like a, a top 10. And then he said, and you had the second 10. These guys were really, really good. And then you had a third 10. And it went down the line. And, and some of these guys, if, I mean, you always had to do is just look at their records. It's just amazing, you know, and yet some of them didn't even crack the top 10. 
but that's how many fighters there were. Just like I said about the Golden Gloves, and the you know, now um, people ask me when I do give interviews or talks on my books, you know, about uh, what's the reason? Well, I, I have no absolute reason, but I, I do know as far as here in America, uh, sports are so different, you know. Uh, and I'm not making this into a racial thing, but it's but it's true about the black fighters. Uh, back then, uh, most blacks there there wasn't much they could do as far as sport. Even Johnny Kilbane when he when he fought, here's an Irishman, and there was only like two things, especially a guy that small could do. He could play maybe baseball, American baseball, or be a jockey if he you know he was good for horses or box. Uh, other sports weren't big. I mean, it took years and years before basketball and, and American football and, and all these other ones got so huge. So now, like, we have this one school on the east side of Cleveland. It's just like a, a factory for f- football players that go to Ohio State University. Uh, this guy that's the coach there, he has produced some excellent players, and they most of them sign up for what we call the Big Ten. They either go to Ohio State or Michigan University. And a lot of them have made it to the National Football League. Well, there's not too many kids that want to get into boxing. Plus, I think the biggest pitfall in boxing, at least locally, and I can probably in most cities, there are so very few good qualified trainers that know the sport. There's people that want to be, and they're paid. But it's not like when you have a, a, a when you have a, a, a son in school. And he's playing some sport like uh, soccer or, or, you know, football, as you would call it uh, here in America. Even I, when my my sons were playing, I would uh, volunteer to be like an assistant coach. You know, I didn't really know much about the game, but there was some things I could do. Basically, I stood in the goal and let them shoot at me. (laughs) But but uh, to go and say, oh, I'm going to train this kid in boxing when you never fought or we're, you know, and let me paraphrase that a little bit about trainers and boxers. I know there's some people have two schools of thought. Some think you cannot be a, possibly be a good trainer if you didn't have a great career as a fighter yourself. And then there's others that think anybody can be a trainer. Well, it's kind of in between. I mean, there's some fighter, some fighters that became excellent trainers. George Benton's a classic example. Uh, Jimmy Bivens trained a lot of uh, not so many pros, but good golden glove fighters. Um, and then there's some like say Angelo Dundee or, or even a few others that, that, uh, had little or no actual boxing experience, but like Dundee's a classic example. He was in New York learning under some of the great trainers of all time, Chicky Ferrara, uh, Whitey Bimstein, Freddie Brown, you know, all these great, trainers that were in these gyms up in New York and he was schooled by them. He started out carrying the water bucket, you know? And so, but nowadays there's a handful of trainers, but there's not many. And so, I mean, uh, I don't want to ever be one of these, uh, you know, gloom and doomers that say <laughs> boxing is going to die, but it's definitely never going to go uh, become huge again. I can't see it. I don't care how many, giant Russian heavyweights they send over <laughs> it's not or Ukrainians or whatever they are uh, they're not knocking them uh, but there just isn't enough passion and enough people whether it be boxers or trainers to 
to do it, you know. Um, I really started souring, and I don't mean that in a in a mean way, but I was so involved. Okay, I watched some fights, and I got involved with some fights, and I went to fights, and then in the 70s, I became a writer, and I, and I was involved with a, with a boxing gym. Three of us started a boxing gym, and we actually, I don't want to say hired because they were volunteers, but we had some qualified trainers there, produced some real good amateur fighters, and our claim to fame at that gym, which no longer exists, is Roberto Duran trained there for his comeback fight, and Jerry Cotzia trained there for his fight with Michael Dokes his last couple of weeks there. So that was our glory days as far as the gym. But um, it's just, a, it, it's a different thing now and it's a different sport. And uh, so around the eighties and into the early nineties, I really stopped following it for the most part. I mean, I'm aware of who, you know, who's fighting and I'm on Facebook. So I see, but I, I refrain from, you know, getting into one of these, for lack of a better word, pissing contests with people about uh, the old days and the new days, you know. Um, so my books um, are basically historic. Uh, they're, they're, they're biographical, but they're historic. You know, I mean, Cleveland's greatest. Okay, this, this the uh, the second book I, I put out was um, my little book on, on Jimmy Bivens. Now, Jimmy, I can talk about him for hours for the same same reason I can talk about a lot of these old timers. But Jimmy, I knew him for over 40 years and uh, he I didn't realize when I when I was young and started, uh, you know, buying the ring record book or different record books. I saw his name appear like in uh, records of like Walcott or even Joe Lewis or Charles. His name was there, but I didn't have his record. So. I knew he had been a real good fighter. They had had some articles in the paper, even in his later years. But it wasn't until I met him and started really learning from, from him and others and started eventually doing research and talking to I was fortunate to talk to a lot of his opponents, which uh, he outlived most of them. But, I mean, over the years, I met guys like Walcott and Charles and uh, uh, Coley Wallace and and. and uh, you know, several others, Archie Moore, that fought him numerous times and um, learned from them, too, also. And then there's some footage that became available. So uh, Jimmy, when I wrote this book, he was his health was failing by then. But uh, fortunately, he had it finished before, you know, he passed. And he, he, I think he was able to appreciate it. Um, some of the publicity he got, unfortunately, at the at his later years was because of a situation with his own daughter and, and her husband where he almost died. I, I, are you familiar with that story? Uh, not so much, no, but uh, obviously I'm familiar with, well, uh, with Jimmy. His, 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 his wife died, and um, so he was uh, living with his daughter, his only daughter, and uh, her, her husband, and he kind of disappeared. So... Yes. Um, it turned out the the police the, the Cleveland police got a call about another situation. It was a, uh, I guess you could call it child abuse because uh, his daughter had several several children, and the police actually were coming to uh, check on this youngster, 
And when they got there, one of the other kids said, you know who's upstairs? And long story short, they went upstairs and Jimmy was laying there with like a, a, a light bulb and and weighed 110 pounds. He practically was near death. He had been abused and left to die up there. And, and uh, fortunately, he got rescued and, and he lived several more years after that. And, and you know, and, and um, he was uh, inducted in more than one Hall of Fame, including the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1999. But um, that was a sad part of his story. But because of the publicity of that, uh, I think a lot of people started realizing, you know, what he was all about and, and about his career. And, and, and so these Hall of Fames came calling and and he got awards in, in, uh, in 1943 when the titles were frozen because of the war. Uh, he was recognized as the light heavyweight and the heavyweight duration or interim wartime champ. And in 43, when he won the 15-round decision over Anton Christoph Ritas, he was supposed to get a, um, a championship belt from the NBA, the National Boxing Association, which appears in a lot of records. You know, there was a period of time where you had, uh, even though you only had the, the minimum amount of weight divisions, you had uh, some fighters were only recognized by the NBA or New York. I remember one time, uh, uh, I think it was Lisa Vold was recognized by the British boxing board as the heavyweight champ, you know, but, uh, he was supposed to get this, this, this belt and he didn't. And fortunately because of the publicity and I knew a guy, um, that used to be involved with one of the head officers of the NBA and he was down in Florida and, uh, we were able to present Jimmy with that, you know, they had to make a new one, but, uh, uh, an NBA duration belt. So he did have some glory, uh, much later in life, which he should have had earlier on because, uh, you know, his credentials, um, I could talk two hours. I could talk two hours about his credentials. Um, how many, not only the champions he beat, but a lot of people aren't familiar with some of the fighters he was fighting. Even late in his career. I have, I did, I have a new book out, uh, with co-writer John Respanti, uh, called a few more rounds. And, um, in it, I do a, a chapter on Bivens. It says more Jimmy Bivens. And it's things I found out that I didn't even realize when I was writing about him. Um, like how late in his career, even though he had lost quite a few fights in his later years, uh, he was still ranked in the top 10 in the heavyweights for a long, long time. Even he was ranked as, as late as 1952. And, um, and you know, when he... In 43, when he was ranked number one in the heavyweight and the light heavyweight, that's that's a shame. I and mean, there's circumstances. Obviously, the war was on. I mean, he beat Gus Lesnovich, who was yep. champ at the time, light heavyweight, in a non-title fight. But Joe Lewis supposedly had promised him a title fight when when they got, got when they when they both got out of the service because Jimmy was in for a while too. And um, of course, when Joe Lewis got out, there was the big thing about wanting a rematch of Billy Kahn. And then he also fought Tammy Moriel, who Jimmy had beaten twice. So he didn't get a fair play. But it's really nice to see people realizing how good he was. You know, and they, when they start talking about underrated fighters or fighters from back then, including the, what they call the murderer's row, yep. um, Jimmy and fellow Clevelander Lloyd Marshall um, – are getting their just due from from that standpoint. Um, 
Lloyd, Jimmy never fought overseas. Like Lloyd Marshall came to England, and he also fought in Germany. I mean, the uh, I have a, a beautiful footage of the fight of Lloyd Marshall really beating the heck out of Freddie Mills in 1947, which is kind of ironic because then Mills gets a return match with Lesnovich, beats him, and uh, Lloyd goes back home and ends up fighting Ezra Charles, who he had knocked out in in 1943, and getting stopped himself. So he never got a, a whiff of that title either. And after I did um, the Bibbins fight, um, ironically, four of my books were put together by a gentleman named Harry Otty, who is from Liverpool, but he lives in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, Harry is the, uh, I believe, I don't know what his official title is in New Zealand, but he's, a, he's the head man of the amateur boxing down there. But he's also a publisher, and, and so he, he was such a great help to me. Uh, the next book I, I came out with, 50 Years of Fights, Fighters, and Friendships, it's basically uh, my journey through boxing. It, 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 and there's funny stories in here. I, I mean, I'm not afraid to even tell embarrassing things. You know, I mean, it, 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 it talks about my journey through boxing, uh, some of the funny things that happened, and some very funny things did happen. I mean, kind of strange things like... Um, um, we, uh, I'll tell you just one, one brief kind of funny chapter. It, it's called, uh, don't worry, Mrs. Cooner, everything will be all right. There was a young, young fighter named Dave Cooner that actually trained at our gym. My good friend, Don Myers trained him. So after all this training, we decided to take him out to an amateur show and, and get him his, you know, first fight. So his, he was a good looking kid, big and strong. Kind of like, you know, his parents, I don't think, wanted him to get his face uh, messed up. So we get him out there. They're sitting ringside, and I'm trying to convince them. I didn't work the corner. Don did. And with this uh, trainer, John Giacchetti, who was the uncle of the late Richie Giacchetti, uh, who trained Holmes. Hmm. Anyhow, I barely get the words out of my mouth that everything's going to be fine. The bell rings, and Dave gets hit by his opponent, and he's face first on the canvas. I mean, flat out. And I, his mother looks like she's going to have a heart attack. His father, I don't know what's going through his mind. And meanwhile, I have a camera and I'm snapping pictures. <laughs> and Dave somehow pulls himself up. This is his first fight, mind you. Grabs the guy, hangs on, the bell rings, and he's saved. By the third round, this guy is out of gas and Dave knocks him out. Turned out, the trainer, John Jacchetti, was lied to. He was told that this kid only had one fight or, or might have maybe even had no fights. Turned out that kid didn't make it. So the kid that they put in with him was, uh, he had been in prison. And he had, he looked like he had been, when I saw him, I went, wait a minute, this guy looks <laughs> older and he's scarred up and he had like seven fights. So anyhow, uh, Don and I joked years later that we, when Dave went down and he was flat out and his feet were sticking up, we could have sold advertising on the bottom of his shoes, you know, eat at Joe's or something. We never thought he was going to get up. But, you know, it was a lot of funny stories, including uh, some ironic things. I have a chapter there called uh, From a Pub Crawl to Wembley Arena. I went on my first trip to Europe in 1970 by myself. A friend was supposed to go with me, and he last minute he changes mine. I decide I'm going anyhow. 
always dreamt about going to Europe at the time. Little did I know I was going to go there many times, but that was my first trip. So I was in Germany and Switzerland and Austria and, and Northern Italy and back to Germany. On the way home, I had a stop off in London for not quite a week. Uh, overall, the whole trip was a little over a month. So I'm in London staying in the West End and I'm doing a typical thing that you should do when you're in going to pubs. <laughs> so I'm in this one pub and everyone was really friendly. You know, of course, as soon as I started talking, I knew I was a yank. And uh, this guy, and I, it's strange because I have a very good memory for names. I mean, my, my Linda tells me, I don't believe you. I think you're making this up. How could you remember all those things from when you were so little? Well, this guy that I met in the pubs, literally standing across from him, I don't remember his first name, but his last name was Atkinson. And somehow the subject of boxing comes up. And um, turns out he's going to watch the uh, Chuck Webner, Joe Bugner fight card at Wembley. And he has an extra ticket. Well, this is at the end of my trip. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm lucky I have a room and they had breakfast. And I'm going around seeing the sites, the typical sites if you go to London for the first time. But I can't afford to be paying for like a boxing tickets. And he says to me, no, mate, it's on me. Or no, he says something about, oh, my, my mate bombed out. Or anyhow, he takes me to the fights. And so that was a horrible fight. I mean, uh, you know, Joe Bugner, who I used to write some very good things about in London uh, Boxing News, he can be bore. He could be very boring to say the least. And, and of course, Webner started bleeding like I think when he walked through into the ring. It was, it was over in three rounds. But uh, Alan uh, Rutkin fought. Uh, Bunny Sterling fought and won the title. I mean, it was a good card. We were not in great seats, but that was one of the strange things that happened to me over the years. It's just like um, I had other uh, other things. I would go to. Uh, uh, I, had a, I was a steel worker, and they would lay us off uh, for a couple of weeks to do repairs, or there was other economic reasons that they weren't getting the steel, the, uh, the slabs to make the steel. Uh, so I had a friend out in, in Los Angeles, and uh, I would go out, what, what we call the red eye, it was a fairly cheap flight in those days. Uh, uh, Los Angeles is about, oh, over a four-hour flight from Cleveland, and I would get tickets for like, $200 U.S. at that time. And he had all the connections out there. So I got to go to fights at the Olympic Auditorium and uh, Inglewood Forum, which is now called the Forum. I got to see Ruben Alvarez def- uh, lose his title to David Poison Cote and um, got to see the first um, Carlos Palomino uh, uh, Ma- Ma- uh, uh, Munez fight, fight uh, for, for the welterweight title. Uh, he always had connections. So, you know, there's always these fluke things that weren't planned. Um, and I would be in the right place at the right time. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, when I went to one of my first fights after that 57 fight, it was in six, 1964, Joey Gerardello was middleweight champ by then. And, uh, he was kind of a favorite coming to Cleveland. He fought here about seven times, never lost. He fought, a fighter from Argentina named Rocky Rivero twice in April and May of 1964. At the first fight, uh, I met 
Rocky Marciano and Rocky Graciano. Uh, at intermission, they were sitting down there. And then I also met Joey Giardella. And then the second fight was the first time I met Jimmy Bivens. I also met Jersey Joe Walcott, Ezra Charles, and Joe Lewis. So, you know, being at the, the place at the right time. And so this this whole journey, it it it's uh, got a lot of pictures and, and things too, but it's it, it just one of these... Um, um, I'll give you one more example, then I'll get off of this book. Um, New Zealand in 15 minutes of fame. 1975, I had been corresponding with some people in New Zealand, and I had a job, and the, the job got eliminated, and the boss gave me $3,000 U.S. as a, what they call severance pay. So the smart thing to do would be get another job. Mm-hmm. I was single. I you know I didn't have any obligations to a family but not me i wanted to go to new zealand i'd heard what a beautiful country it was and so i did so i spent a month down there two people that i had been corresponding with uh, one lived in wellington and one lived in auckland uh it was just before the uh thriller in manoa the third ali oh, fraser fight they had me lined up because by then i was established somewhat as a writer in, in, in magazines and uh, in fact, I met a couple of people down in New Zealand at some dinners and that, and they said, I, I read your stuff, Jerry, in boxing news. I don't agree with you all the time. <laughs> I said, well, that's fine. I don't write to, you know, <laughs> to, to, I write what I feel, you know, not trying to please everybody. But anyhow, they lined me up. I ended up being on national television, which I always put a little disclaimer on that saying, Yes, it's national television. At that time, New Zealand had 3 million people. So it wasn't like I was on national television in the United States or something. Uh, but I was on three or four radio shows, and they were basically interviewing me and asking me a lot of questions because I had met Ali and Fraser by then. Uh, and some of the questions were bizarre, like the one guy on Radio Windy, it was called. He says, he says you've, met, you've met Ali and Fraser, and there's a rumor that Ali has come to Manila with his girlfriend and not his wife. What do you think of that? I was like, oh, I don't. What do you want me to think about that? It has nothing to do with the fight. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get into that, you know. And do you think George Foreman, you know, blah blah blah? So, but but it was fun, and that was like that's why I said it's a New Zealand in fifteen minutes of fame. I um, I got invited to the uh, national amateur championships in Wellington that year and sat ringside, and. Uh, Met some really good fighters, including a, a fighter named Boss Murphy, who was the first New Zealander to ever win the Briti- the then British Empire title. He won the uh, middleweight title in 1950-something. Uh, I remember off the top of my head there. But anyhow, um, it was it was great, and the book was fun. And uh, it really wasn't uh, – it, it was kind of like a memoir. People that were asking me, you know, they'd say, uh, you know, you, you saw a lot and you did a lot. And I thought, eh, I don't know if I can do that. Then I wrote this one, which I love. Johnny Risco, the Cleveland Rubber Man. Johnny was born in what is now Slovakia. His family came to Cleveland when he was like six years old. And uh, he was just an enigma. That's the only way I can describe it. Uh, If you look at his record, um, you know, he beat guys like Max Bear and Jack Sharkey and some really good fighters, and then he lost to some bums. I mean, his record was spotty, but but he was always in the fight, and he never got stopped until the last fight of his career when uh, 
Tony Musto stopped him in three rounds. But the story isn't just about all these fights. He was such a character. And the th- he, he was a lovable, funny man. He loved to drive fast. Uh, he get, you'd always get speeding tickets. And, get, you know, he ran taverns, bars, pubs, whatever you want to call them. A couple of those buildings still exist. In fact, one still has his name on it, although I went to visit them and they could care less about him. I said, don't you? I, I was going to give him a poster. <laughs> this is what this all began. They go, eh. But that's people with boxing nowadays. So a lot of research. Uh, a friend of mine works at the Cleveland Public Library, and he's really into research. Uh, there's a lot of research put into this book, and there's some some good photos. But he is quite a character, and he had a car. It was there was um, a place that made three different types of cars: Auburns, Cords, and Duesenbergs, and they were really expensive cars. And around the time Henry Ford and some of these other people started mass producing cars, there wasn't too many people were buying these expensive, really classy looking cars. But he had two of them. One of them, he wrecked, and the other one, it survived. And a guy from Texas contacted me two years ago, and he located this vehicle um, just outside of Cleveland, took it back to Texas and and restored it, and he's coming up for a big car show in October, and he wants to get the, uh, the surviving members of the Risco family to have a gathering and whatever, so that ought to be interesting. Um, my last book with Harry Adi was uh, called My Favorite Fights, and I always have to explain, or maybe I don't have to explain, maybe I, I think too much, but this was in 2018. These are my favorite fights. It isn't. It doesn't say the greatest fights of all time. Yeah. Uh, they're my favorite fights for various reasons. Quite a few of my rat, but you know, uh, Aaron Pryor, Dewan Johnson in Cleveland, because that's the only time I saw. You know, some local ones. I, I mentioned that Palomino Armando Munez first fight. Of course, the first fight I saw with with Basilio and Saxton. But there's others. The uh, Cassius Clay, Doug Jones. Danny Little Red Lopez with Bobby Chacon. The, the second Patterson Johansson fight, which was so historic. I have two two London fights, actually. Freddie Mills and Joey Maxim. And and Freddie Mills and Lloyd Marshall. I have footage of both of them, so that's how, you know, not all these fights I saw in person. Of course, uh, Marciano Walcott, that first fight, I just loved that fight. I mean, it was such a terrific fight. Uh, and then, you know, Lewis Kahn, uh, Norton Holmes, Ali, Chuck Webner. Now, not a great fight necessarily, but I was there, and I, I lucked out here again. Uh, I wasn't in good terms with Don King. for That's another story for another day. But uh, the guy that was from, uh, kind of the uh, PR director for the fight, his name was Jeff Temkin. He's no longer with us. He... Uh, Instead of giving me a regular uh, press pass, he gave me a roving photographer's pass. Now, I, I don't claim to be a photographer, although I did take a camera and take some. But I was able to move around everywhere, dressing room, before and after, all around the ring, anywhere I wanted to go. And that was really something. So that's a, that's a special memory for me. Uh, and, and, it, and it goes on. So, you know, I, I did 25 fights. The first uh, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran that was that was an amazing fight to me, and uh, of course the first Ali Fraser fight, I 
I rate that fight higher in my own memory and my own thoughts than the third one because both of them were pretty spent. I mean, they really battled in Manila, but that first one, I never have seen so much publicity, so many famous people. The, the, they went to that fight. They were like dressed like they were going to a, a ball. You know, the, 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 they were going to, to, to the Queen's <laughs> inauguration or whatever. Uh, the nerves, I don't think I was that nervous. You know, I had a few amateur fights. And uh, I, in sports in general, probably because I never became great in any sport, because my nerves used to get the better of me. I would try to calm down. And uh, usually when, whatever sport I was in, once the game started, when, uh, I'd, I'd be okay. But leading up to it, I would almost get sick to my stomach. Well, that night of, of um, the first Ali Fraser fight, my knees were chattering. They were clanking. It, I, the, the, the drama, the whole suspense of it, it was just, uh, I've never felt that. And I've watched a lot of fights and, and been at a lot of fights. You know, I mean, I've been excited. I've been, you know, I've been nervous. I've been sad. You know, when I, someone I knew was fighting and, and fighting the fight of their life. And then with seconds to go in the fight, they get stopped or something. I feel bad or, but I never felt like that first one. So the last one, which I mentioned before, a few more rounds. During this whole pandemic, of course, all of us everywhere, or most everywhere, locked down, can't go places, kind of just, well, Linda and I were fine because we've been retired for a long time, but I mean, it's still, I couldn't go. We got a 22-month-old granddaughter, couldn't see her up close. There was a lot of weird things happening and worry and stress, but we were pretty good. But this John Respanti, who lives in California, he's written a couple books, including he and a co-author, Dan Taylor, wrote a, a trilogy of uh, uh, Gotti and Ward. And uh, he has reviewed my books for different, he has some podcasts he's involved in, Max Box and so forth. And I've reviewed his couple books too. So we knew each other, sort of. And one day while we were chatting online, um, I don't know how it came up, but we said, you know, I said, I wouldn't, I've never did a, a, a book with, he, he did with a co-author. I never have. And I said, to, it might be kind of neat to, to do a book, you know, with a co-author. He's younger than me. I'm, I'm 74 and he's, I think he just turned 62. So he's a little more involved and, and still a little bit involved in current boxing. Plus he started watching boxing a little uh, later than I did, and which carried on to watching it a little later than I did also at the end of his real seriousness of watching boxing. But anyhow, he's a good writer. And we said, why not? And next, you know, we're exchanging ideas and we actually put this book together. It's, um, it's by the publisher is, uh, you know, um, it's, it's in Iowa city. It's win by Kale, And the, uh, the guy that runs that place, he has put out a lot of books and a lot of other pretty well-known books have come out of there. They do a good job. So basically John and I did 20 chapters, each did 10 and, you know, totally different stories. Uh, and then uh, we got Nigel Collins, who used to be the head honcho at, at, at several magazines. He, he was involved with Box Illustrated and Ring. Uh, he's a Brit actually, but he's been here a long time. Um, and he's a Hall of Famer. 
he did the forward for us. But um, just to give you a little brief, I'm watching my time here. I know you got to get going. Uh, I did a, a, I, all the fighters I met over 60 world champions. And one of the first that I ended up being friends with for a very long time was Tony Zale. Uh, and though I've had chapters in some, you know, bits and pieces over the years, I never wrote a, a real lengthy chapter. So that's my first chapter. Then he has one. Uh, this is what John has. It's called Dad, Oklahoma, and Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. And what this boils down to is his dad was uh, from Chicago, but he, he got a job in oil, and Oklahoma was still really big in oil then, so they moved there for his job. And young John, it was a bunch of big, tough guys standing around, and, and they hated Muhammad Ali. You know, they said he was a draft dodger and, he, you know, blah, 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 and a Muslim, and it went on and on and on. And John was really crazy about Muhammad Ali. So they started giving him a real hard way to go. And uh, John's father had been a street fighter, literally. He he fought for, for money on the streets in Chicago growing up. So I guess his nose was making like a left turn or something, and he looks the part. He's Italian. He looks tough. Anyhow. So uh, he went over, and I guess these guys were suddenly backtracking. They, they left uh, John alone. But different stories like that. I have one on the Greeks. Anton Christophoridis, who was from Greece and fought in Paris before World War II and then got out of there and came to America and fought and won the NBA light heavyweight title. I met him, and because of him, I ended up making all these friendships and, and all kinds of things happen, and I'm no more Greek than, than the man on the moon. But there's different things here. And um, I think I mentioned earlier, I have one chapter called More Jimmy Bivens. It's some of the things I found out after the fact. Um, so that's number six and I'm working on number seven, but uh, I'm kind of a superstitious guy, uh, but it's going to happen because, uh, I'm pretty well along and it's, I can only tell you this, it's going to be, it's going to be with Arcadia publishing again, which did my first book. Uh, in fact, uh, I wanted to mention, I'm not trying to promote anybody's books, but when I put this out in 2002, there was one other. It's called Images of Sports. They're all the same. They're 128 pages with generally sometimes more photos than others. This Mine has like 100 photos. There might be some with way more that don't have as much text. The first one was called Detroit Metro Boxing by a guy named Lindy Lindell. And uh, when I saw that and I had my earlier version of this, that's I decided to submit it. And thankfully, it worked out. It kind of snowballed. I'm not taking credit, and I'm sure Lindy isn't either. But several others came out after this. You have the same kind of format. You have one on, on New York boxing. You have one on Baltimore, on Boston, on New York, on Chicago, on San Francisco, on Los Angeles. Uh, and they're all pretty good, the whole series. And they're still available. I was amazed, you know, because for several years this book wasn't – in being printed anymore and people were asking me uh, how do I get a copy and I only you know I was out of copies well in 2010 they started a different way of publishing out uh, out of Arcadia so now they print on demand so it's been selling again and anytime I need copies they're available you know it's 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 a good good situation they used to say to me well if if people show interest we'll print more yeah. And I'd say, well, you know, when I go to a, a bookstore and I see books, I might look up, oh, this looks interesting, and I pick it off the shelf. And that's how a lot of these 
So unless somebody comes into the store and says, hey, do you have that book by Jerry Fitch, Cleveland's Greatest Fighters of All Time? Uh, so how do you know if there's demand? I said, I know there's demand because people keep contacting me. So now it's it's available all the time. So I've been uh, selling these overseas. And I don't know if I mentioned to you or not in, in one of our exchanges. Out of all these books, and they all end up on Amazon and various bookstores, and I'm not going to bore you or take up more time by listening, but even even overseas, for some reason, when Harry would get in touch with me about the sales, how many books were sold, and whatever, the one out of all that sold the most in, in the UK was Jimmy Bivens, <laughs> which I, I thought ironic because, like I say, he never fought overseas. He, you know, he, uh, but yet people really have taken an interest in that. Yeah. And um, I'm happy about that. You know, I mean, uh, I wish uh, I wish I could have come out with that book 10 years before Jimmy passed, you know. In fact, I wish I would have. Uh, I was going to have a follow-up, you know, an expanded version, uh, but it never came to be. And, you know, and then now I figured, oh, at least I can put a chapter in the new book about, you know, some of the things I learned about Jimmy. Oh, oh one other thing I learned about Jimmy, which out of all – 112 pro fights, and he thinks there's even some that end up not in the record book. You know that it was up to the trainers and managers, and whatever, to turn it into the to whoever was compiling them. Like Ring Magazine was was the big thing, but you know there was other sources. And uh, but 112 fights, and besides the champions he beat, which was eight, and and all the top contenders. Out of all those fights, only six of the guys he fought when he met him had losing records. He wasn't fighting a bunch of stiffs or, yeah, even in, in those were in his first year. In fact, most, I think three or four were in his first year. Uh, you can't say that about a lot of fighters. I, I, yeah. I, I look up some fighters' records, you know, and I go, oh my God, this guy, what, <laughs> you know, so and so and so and so. But look at that record. He was yeah. fighting guys with. Terrible, you know, one win, four loss, you know, and lots of them. <laughs> so he was, he was kind of, well, his first year he beat Charlie Burley. Uh, how many times have you or anybody read in recent history about Charlie Burley and, and where someone hasn't said he's one of the greatest fighters and one of the most underrated fighters of all time? Any, 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 rightfully so. But Jimmy started, he won the, in, in, in 1939, he won the Welterweight Golden Gloves. And he turned pro as a welterweight, and then he moved into middleweight. Uh, actually, in his first year, in 1940, he was number nine middleweight in the ring ratings. But he beat Burley in his first year, which was in in, in Pittsburgh. Um, that was quite a quite an accomplishment, you know. And uh, the, you know. Guys that weren't champs. I mean, he beat fellow Clevelander Lloyd Marshall, but he, yeah. but he beat so many good fighters. And uh, then they thought he was washed up, you know. And, and um, Coley Wallace, who played Joe Lewis in the uh, Joe Lewis story, he was a decent heavyweight, but they were touting him. And they took Jimmy up to St. Nick's Arena, figuring he's finished. So Jimmy thought he was winning the fight. It turned out he was losing the fight big. In the ninth round, the bell rings. Jimmy goes out, one right hand, flattens Wallace. 
<laughs> and after the fight, Wallace attacks him, and the, and the dressing room said he cheated. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the belly run, how could you be cheating? <laughs> but I'm sorry it took so long for me to get online today. Aye, don't worry, Jerry. Obviously, there's a few questions that um, that I've got. I want to ask you really because, uh, and they're probably more quick fire to be honest with you, because I know like you've you've had the opportunity to sit and talk through a lot of the stuff that you've been involved. Yeah, I told in. you I'm. Lo- I told you I'm long-winded. <laughs> hey, well, this is it. You're telling the story. The thing is, you're telling us a story about where it all began for you. Who who caught your eye? The types of fighters you've been around. You've you've mentioned about the career in writing how that's then blossomed into writing books and you've mentioned each individual book so people that are listening and watching can can look at these books now and they can purchase them either via like a third party like in Amazon or obviously they can come direct to you as well and, and, and contact you like I've done obviously you know I've I've bought all the books from you I thought you know this is this is something I want in my collection and you mentioned Jimmy Bivins and obviously reading up on Jimmy myself it was like you know, this this is a guy that is, um, as you rightly pointed out, you know, people say he's very underrated and there's a reason for that and it's because of how many f- future world champions or world champions he would go on to fight uh, but never get that shot himself. So I found it quite intriguing uh, and, and I suppose it was down to a lot of what was going on in the, in the generation at the time. As you mentioned, the Black Murderers Row as well. That's something I've done a, a lot of research on myself and you look at all the fighters that were involved in that and you could even argue Archie Moore was uh, was a part of that black murder as well but he was one that actually went on to obviously win titles but he fought every single one of them in that black murder as well which I found really fascinating. Uh, Archie Moore Archie Moore as a matter of fact Archie Moore um, mentioned that uh, he the, the black murderer's row which uh, an author named Springs Toledo wrote an excellent book on the murderer's row uh, I contributed a little bit to that not much but a little bit uh, Archie Moore is quoted in, in, in another book where he called Jimmy Bivens. He named a bunch of, but they were he was naming strictly middleweights, yeah. and he called Jimmy Bivens and himself the the the, the black murderers row of the middleweights. <laughs> so even though Jimmy and even Archie are not in that quote, you know, murderers row, they they had their own little murderers row going yeah. there for a while. Yeah, that's true. Uh, right. So as I was saying, there's obviously a few things that. I'm, I'm sure you've got the answers to directly in your mind when I ask you the questions. Um, but the obvious questions for me that come out of the conversation is, out of all the, obviously, opportunities you've had to see certain fights live from ringside, because, as you said, nothing beats being at ringside to watch them, just name one particular fight that always jumps out at you when you think of the time that you've spent covering fights at ringside. If you want me to pin it down to one, I will. Uh, you know, just like when I told you about that, my favourite fights... Necessi- they weren't necessarily the greatest fights, you know. Yeah. Uh, and when I saw Ruben Oliveira's fight in 1975 in, in, in uh, L.A., it, it certainly wasn't one of the greatest fights because he was not in great shape. Uh, it's a memorable fight because there was, a riot broke out and I almost got hit with a chair. But uh, it, one, of the, one of the fights that really, as far as if you're strictly talking about ringside as opposed to um, you know, television or, or whatever, a closed circuit. Uh, we had a fighter here in Cleveland named Billy Wagner. He fought under the name of Irish Billy Wagner. Uh, local guy, came out of the Golden Gloves. He was a, he actually worked at the Plain Dealer, the newspaper where I was working at at the time. Uh, and um, he turned pro 
and he fought as a light heavyweight. And as close as he came, he actually kind of nudged in the top 10 once or twice. Um, but the fight, for whatever reason, and, and you know, as a writer, you certainly got to be objective and not, you know, uh, take things personal. Yeah. Uh, jump up at the at the at ringside and start rooting on the you know so was a but billy wagner had a there was a fighter another fighter named john griffin another uh local light heavyweight and um they didn't like each other and they the first time they fought um billy i think he got shut out really I and mean, he started coming on the end of the fight he lost a 10 round unanimous decision so they had a rematch it got postponed because billy had gotten sick or something the uh Local boxing commission at the time, Cleveland Boxing Commission, was uh, thinking Billy pulled out for other reasons. They were, you know, they started some trouble about it, but it got smoothed over. When they finally fought in, in February of '72, uh, Billy was had a big left hook. He could box a little, but he had a big left hook, and uh, I think you know he made his brother was his trainer and his manager, which I that's another story. Sometimes that does not work well, family members, you know. Um, uh, leading up to this, you know, he fought he fought Don Fulmer, who, unlike his brother Gene, was a boxer. So leading up to that fight, um, his brother said, oh, we're going to outbox him. Well, hindsight's wonderful. He, he should have crowded Don Fulmer and just stayed on top of him. Instead, he tried to outbox him and he got shellacked 10 rounds. When he fought John Griffin the second fight, this is one of my for different reasons, fights. I, I would have to. I would have to toss this one and the two Giardello Rivero fights up as as my favorite ringside. But Billy fought a different fight this time. It was they decided to have it twelve rounds? They felt his brother felt the first fight was ten rounds. If it had gone twelve, Billy was coming on strong. That Billy would have won. So they set it for twelve. So Billy just takes it to him he is on top of him he stays in close he's throwing body shots there's no way in the world he can lose this fight uh i would keep a running tab i mean, I'd keep notes and whatever you know because i'm covering it for a magazine or something and uh, on my scorecard heading into the last round i think i had him up nine rounds but at the end of the 11th round um, it's kind of like that old age where they always say, you know, defend your, always defend yourself at all times. Yep. Right near the bell, just about as the bell is ringing, Billy drops his hands and John Griffin hits him with a, a, a left hook. And didn't floor him, but he hurt him. So back to the corner, you got the corner working on him, trying to revive him. Seems like he's okay. Bell rings for round 12. At around the two-minute mark, Billy gets hit with a left hook, goes into the ropes, and goes down. And uh, it was such a terrific fight up to then. You know, I mean, even though he was winning handily, it wasn't like Griffin was letting him have it. You know, they, they were uh, Griffin had opened a cut under his left eye, uh, Billy's left eye. It was just a, a real cl- crowd pleasing. And, of course, even though they're both were locals, I think Billy was the, uh, you know, the the favorite, uh, fan favorite. You know, I mean, 
he certainly wasn't called a great white hope, but I mean, he he had a lot of local following. Plus, I think they had some articles about him more often than not because he he drove a truck, he delivered the papers for the for the newspaper, you know, at the time. So he was well known, and 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 everyone you know liked him at the at the, the writers at the Plain Dealer, uh, which at that time was a, a big time paper. It was the biggest one in Ohio in circulation. But anyhow, he goes down, he gets up. Two, I think it was 201, two-minute mark, and he just kind of, I guess, the referee John Christopher thought, well, he's in bad shape, and he stopped the fight. So John Griffin pulls it out. Uh, terrific fight. It was just, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> so I go into the locker room afterwards, and the doctor's in there looking at Billy. In fact, he's uh, putting a couple stitches in this cut. And Billy is so upset why did they stop it? Why did they stop it? And the reason he was upset, obviously losing the fight because it was a, a big fight, uh, you know, a step up the ladder possibly. Uh, John Griffin had not only beaten him, he had beaten uh, Ray Anderson, who eventually got a title shot with Bob Foster, although he basically ran for 15 rounds. But he had beaten Anderson twice, who was also a local guy. And he had fought in some – He had fought, <laughs> John Griffin fought as a substitute against – Giant Jack O'Halloran, who was like a mountain next to a molehill, and beat him 10 out of 10 rounds, I mean, just with boxing. He was a good fighter, but Billy was upset that he let everybody down. And I'll never forget that. He wasn't in tears, but he was just so upset. He let everybody down. He let his brother down. He let his wife down. He let the fans down, and, you know. And eventually he got a shot with uh, Mike Corey in the garden in New York for the um, North American, you know, they create these titles, North American light heavyweight title, televised fight. And, you know, I'm biased, of course, a little bit because I knew him, but I thought he won the fight. And when they announced it, it was a draw. And that was Billy's last hoorah. But uh, that fight there, for whatever reason, not only the fight action was great, but the whole parameter about the two fighters, uh, one lived in a really nice, basically white Irish-Italian neighborhood in Cleveland. The other lived in what you could almost call the ghetto. Two different kind of upbringings. John Griffin won the national AAU uh, as a light heavyweight uh, two years. He was a really good amateur fighter. Billy had just won a local goal and I mentioned briefly about the, the two G.R. Dello Rivero fights. Uh, are you familiar who Russell Peltz is? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to insult you, but Russell is boxing royalty. Yeah. Uh, we're the same age. I, I Unfortunately, all the traveling and all the stuff, I, I never got to attend one of his fights in Philadelphia. But we've known each other for years, and we've had dealings with each other. And we're kind of good friends, even if from a distance. Russell Peltz... Uh, he told me we were talking about the two uh, Giardello Rivero fights, which which is where I went up, met all those great champions. So it was two, in April and, and May of 1964. Um, they were tough fights. I mean, this Rivero came on like a freight train, and and Joey won. Uh, the first fight was a split decision, and the second one was uh, uh, unanimous. But they were tough fights, and Joey looked like. 
he had been through a war. Uh, this is before he fought Reuben Carter and defended the title. Wow. These were two non-title fights. Uh, Russell Peltz is under the, his opinion, and I don't doubt it, he says that uh, those two non-title fights with Rocky Rivero, and I don't even know why they, they set up two like that, but they did, just took an awful lot out of Joey. It, 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 just to show you the people that argue about Reuben Carter claiming he beat G Joey Giardello, and he didn't. I've watched that fight. I can't tell you how many times over the years. Um, but it's a, it just shows you what a, what a terrific fighter Joey Giardello was because uh, Russell said, you know, those two fights with Rivera really took, uh, I mean, it's like, you know, when you had a, a close to 100 fights and taken a, a, a God knows how many punches, sooner or later, the accumulation, you know, uh, he was on his last legs, but, but, he, but he boxed beautifully for 15 rounds against Carter. And he was banged up there, too. And Joey is banged up in a lot of fights. But when, when you win 100 or 101, depending whose record book you're looking at, uh, against the fighters he fought, and I was really happy to – I saw. I actually saw one other time, 1959. He fought Dick Tiger at the arena and beat him. Uh, so, but, it, you know, I, I've been fortunate. And But Cleveland, you know, even if I was still interested in boxing, I'd, I'd have to travel somewhere to, to go see some fights – they yeah. still put, you know, a few fights on here and there in, in California and, and, of course, Vegas and, and a couple other places. But uh, it's it's really falling down. It's a, it's a shame because I, you know, I know how I felt when I was young and, and you know, how impressed I was. And, you know, and, and you get you get older and you think differently, too. You know, like I never thought about fighters getting hurt, uh, suffering brain damage. It wasn't until years and years later when I started meeting some of these fighters, and I never have mentioned names because I just I don't see the sense of that, you know, to say, oh, I met so and so and he he talked like he had marbles in his mouth or he had a lisp or he couldn't remember his name. I would never do that to them, but I did get to see more and more of, of what the damage does, you know, and, and that's not a uh, I'm getting on a soapbox to promote anti-boxing, but I I have a different outlook on it, you know. Um, even when I fought, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of fights, but I, one time I did get knocked out one time and, and I had a terrible headache for days, you know, and, and I was in the army at the time. And so I went to the, this is before the days of CAT scans and all these, you know, back then, the only thing they did for you, uh, x-ray, or they had a thing called brainwave where they literally glued wires to your head. And, you know, I didn't have that done, but I had a headache for days. So I go to the doctor on the base and, you know, uh, how'd you, uh, what, why do you have a headache? And I told him, you know, I got knocked out. I got uh, the biggest punch of that whole sequence that I remember or what they told me was I got hit right in the temple with a left hook, you know. Uh, and even though I had a headgear on, it, it just, I just lost all my equilibrium. And then he hit me with a bunch of other punches and I went down and they stopped the fight. But he said he was an anti, he was a doctor and an anti-boxing guy. And he says, you know. He explained to me about your brain rattling in, up against your skull. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Like, if my mother would have heard that, she would have died. You know, she, Not that I was a sissy or anything, that, but she, she uh, you know, I had a bad concussion when I was real young, and, and she would have been, she didn't want me to box, put it that way. And uh, so I didn't tell her much about it until after the fact. 
And uh, I came home one time on what they call leave. And I had had uh, suffered a cut. And and uh, it healed, but there was a scar. And my mother, you know, so happy to see me. What happened there by your eye? I, well, I, <laughs> I fell out of bed. I was drunk. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I had to tell her. <laughs> I, I had to tell her she was, it's, but I, by then I had quit. Although years later when I got home, I, I, I got involved with friends of mine and we, uh, we started that gym, like I said, and I did spar and, you know, and, and, and not terrible battles in the gym or anything, but, you know, I did, I wasn't totally, I had never planned the boxing, but I was, I loved the, the conditioning part of boxing. You know, I loved doing the road work. I loved skipping rope. I loved, I even loved sparring to a degree. But hitting the bags, you know, just the, the, all the stuff made you. It was a good training, and I still recommend that part of it for people. They don't ever have to put on a, uh, you know, fight anybody in a sparring match. But if they go through everything else, uh, it's one of the best trainings, you know. There, are, so you know, teach his own. But I did. I like I said, I did. As the years have gone by, I have a little bit different outlook on boxing. Back then, I would watch. I'd watch these fights and like, you know, blood all over the place and guys yeah. getting knocked down numerous times and screaming like everyone else, you know, kill them. <laughs> but now it's all changed and it's a, you look got a different perspective on everything now. And they do say it changes as you get older. Uh, they're very much right in, in, in that. And uh, for, for me and for obviously for people that have been listening and watching, I think they'll have got a completely, you know, different different understanding of how things have been throughout the the decades, really, for for someone like yourself who's lived through it all, and obviously you've wrote six great books off the back of it. And I think the final thing, really, for the people that are listening and watching, Jerry, is like if the people do want to buy direct from you as opposed to going through third party, you know, like how would they do that? How would they get in touch with you? I I think you know I I you know I I can't rely I I do rely on Facebook. Uh, you know I have my Cleveland boxing site there. And, and a lot of people have purchased books through that way, even overseas. Uh, Cleveland boxing uh, history is called, but my email address, you know, is certainly the best way. I mean, uh, Jerry, that's with a J Jerry Fitch, one word, 1946 at gmail.com. Uh, that 46 is the year I was born. Showing your age. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, in more ways than one. Well, um, yeah, well. But the, one, one last thing I would say, though, you know, if people listen to this and they say, well, he sounds like he's really down on boxing. Well, I'm not down. I'm just not a huge follower. But the reason I write these books, I think all these fighters and these they deserve, they deserve to be told. They deserve the credit. Um, I can truthfully say this. I can't recall certainly not out of the 60 world champions I've met and any of them that I disliked uh, some of the finest men I've met in my life and some of them, there was such a contradiction when I was learning about them. You know, you, you see a fight, you go, Tony Zale, the man of steel, you know, this guy, Oh my God. One of the kindest, most gentlest men. Uh, and a lot of them that way, you know, um, Jersey Joe Walcott and I became good friends. Uh, uh, I was able to invite a lot of these guys to boxing dinners because of my bumping into them and meeting them, you know, and then yeah. years later, someone said, hey, do 
do you know any of these great fighters that maybe we can invite to our dinner in Rochester, New York? And I did. You know, I got uh, uh, Tony Zale and Jimmy Bivens and and uh, Jimmy McLaren, who I, I just loved. I spent a lot of time. Uh, Jimmy McLaren, um, he's in that 50 years of fights, uh, fighters uh, in, in friendships uh, called Babyface. I, I was able to spend 10 years off and on going out to Los Angeles and spending time with him. That's that's a different era. You know, the 30s, yeah. you know, McLaren, born in Ireland, Canzanari, uh, Lou Ambers, all these guys, you know, uh, this boxing, I called them almost boxing royalty. It was such a different time, you know. Uh, but all these guys, I met them and, and you, you go, my God, this guy did what? He's just like the, he's like your, like it was your father or the, you know, just a dear friend that never think about them going into the ring and, and being involved in some horrific battles, some of them, you yeah. know. Some were really fancy Dan boxers, but I mean, some of them, you know, oh my God. Uh, I remember meeting Charlie Burley, and uh, then I was talking to Lloyd Marshall, and and Lloyd, I think, might be the only guy that knocked Burley down. I think he knocked him down twice when he when they fought. And Lloyd said to me, "So how is Charlie?" And I said, "Well, I think he's slowing down." I said, "Of course, I never met him before, but his wife said, he says, well, it can't be from boxing." Now at that time, I did not know he knocked Burley down twice. He said, it can't be from boxing. Nobody ever hit him. <laughs> he was referring to his great boxing ability and, and the way he was able to avoid punches and, you know, and, and, yeah. and all that. But, uh, yeah, that, that part of it, the history, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever stop. There, there's still a lot of stories to be told, you know. Yeah, and, yeah uh, I agree. The families, you know, and when you meet the families, and some are sad stories and some aren't. Some are just, you know. They didn't know any different. Dad went off to work. Only his job was getting in the ring and boxing, you know. Yeah. To keep food on the table. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's a lot of the stories. A lot of the stories are that, to be honest. A lot of the old-time stories. Uh, I think we did something on, uh, we did a career profile on Barney Ross quite recently. And when you hear about the stories and you really dig deep into the archives of what, the lives of these fighters were really like or what you can only interpret as these fighters lives are really like it makes you sort of quite thankful to to live in a completely different generation i mean you know you've lived through so many different generations i've only lived through a few and even looking at that now compared to what some of them went through is is unbelievable it's it's unreal to even think about like some of the things that they would have to go through so it's um, oh, yeah. it's it's very very interesting, and you know obviously Jimmy Bivens, the Jimmy, Jimmy Bivens book in particular, the the Johnny Risco book. You know these are fighters that are having their stories told to people that might not really know about them, and then it's giving them the opportunity to to learn more about them, which is which is the beauty of it all, really, and and which is why people do appreciate you know the, these types of biographical books. Are on certain fighters from yesteryear because as you rightly pointed out at the very start of the conversation you could go on social media and you'll get many people that will claim certain fighter is the greatest of this era but yet have they ever even seen this particular fighter fight because a lot of the time there isn't a lot of footage of them on on these fighters no. from yesteryear the uh, classic 
classic example is Harry Greb. Yes, I was just I, you just most you people took, claim yeah, most people rate him uh, is is the greatest player of all time, and and may may have been, but there's no footage, so a lot of people are skeptical. They say, well, you know, I can't even, I can't even see him sparring. I can't, you know, well, even Charlie Burley. The only footage on him is his fight with uh, uh, Oakland Billy Smith, and it's a good, you know, good thing to watch. You know, I mean, so, sadly, these fighters. Bivens an example. All these great fights, uh, and the footage that is available was not his greatest fights. And Johnny Risco, I've never found any footage. Uh, Lloyd Marshall, when he's fighting Freddie Mills in 1947 at, at in, in uh, England, uh, he's considered well past his prime, you know. But when you watch that fight and see, you know, how he rolled his shoulders and how he, you know, he could hit you with a left yeah. hook and hit, hit you with a right. I mean, how amazing he was even then. And I'm not saying, you know, one fight makes a man, but it, it really impressed me. I'm so glad I was able to get that footage. The late Jim Jacobs, who had the biggest fight collection in, mm-hmm. in the world, he had a contact in England. I forget who it was, but he got a lot of films out of there, including, for me, the Maxim uh, Mills fight and the Marshall Mills fight. And, and the Joey Maxim, of course, who had a reputation, rightfully so, of not being a very big puncher. The irony is these these British films are fantastic. They're beautifully done. But the Maxim Mills fight, Maxim actually knocks out Mills in the 10th round, and whoever was doing the video or the, the filming on this missed the knockdown. <laughs> you see in the action, all of, a sudden, all of a sudden there's Freddie on the canvas. You don't see the punch. The one time that Maxim really, I mean, he knocked out a couple of Freddie's teeth, <laughs> and it's not there. But uh, that being said, yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to uh, like Risco. I could only go by all the research we did uh, when I first started doing Cleveland things. Uh, there was some of the old timers around that that knew Risco and had yeah. seen him fight. You know, so you can go by that. But. Uh, it's hard when there's not footage, you know, I mean, guys like, you know, all the modern ones, you know, like Leonard and, 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 and Hagler and all, I mean, there's fight after fight after fight. Yeah. And even, even Sugar, you know, going back Sugar Ray Robinson and Basilio and Gavin, all, there, there's footage, you know, but uh, some of these old timers like grabbing that, you know, and even Burley and Bivens to a degree. Uh, I mean, I would give anything to see a, a fight of Bivens when he, when he, when he knocked out, Ezra Charles, or, or knocked down Ezra Charles numerous times and, and shellacked him. And, and when he, uh, you know, beat uh, all these champions, uh, there's no footage. You know, uh, the footage of his fight in 1948 with Charles is good footage. And it's a close fight, but it's but it's not prime time. Yeah. You know. So... Well, Jerry, you know what? It's been a pleasure. I, I obviously want to thank you for your time because, you know, you spent a long time going through a lot of things for myself and for the people that listen and, and watch the the episode that we put out. And it's been a pleasure. And I feel like we've only, I feel like you've only really scratched the surface of what's there uh, and what, what, what you've experienced. And I'm pretty sure there'll be an opportunity in the future to revisit some of this uh, in, a, in a different capacity because I think there's so much. And, that... and hopefully, hopefully in the future, I 
let you talk a lot more. <laughs> I was like, I was like this was my last interview ever. The way I was talking, to you. but I, I'm, I'm very, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it. You know, yeah. and uh, when people, you know, I, I kind of, it, it's not that I don't mind having compliments and praise. It, you know, I mean, if it's right, if it's uh, truthful, but I, I always make a joke about it. It's kind of true in a way. People say, "Well, how come you know so much?" or whatever, and I go, "Because uh, I'm old." <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh i i did live through a great time in boxing you know yeah. really i mean to, to get a get a bit of a taste of it in the 50s and, and then go over the 60s 70s and 80s uh that was a that was some great boxing you know i mean people that lived in the 20s and 30s you know that i'm sure those great fights were unbelievable you know and especially in back in the days when there was no television and then yeah and people listened to their radio set to the dempsey carpenter fighter whoever you know and just are these people that went like a uh, hundred some thousand people to watch, uh, you know, Dempsey and Tunney. And, and that's mind boggling to think that you would be in a crowd like that, you know, and people, you watch these old films that are available. It was a different world. People yeah. were dressed up in suits and hats, yeah. you know, now it's lucky they have pants on. When they go, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is. It's very true. It is. You know, it, um, it's, it's one of them where you, you know, you kind of love to have been able to. To I'm quite envious uh, of of people like yourself. You know, in the, in respect of that, you've been able to live through the these particular areas, and it's people like me who get to come in at a certain point down the line. Say, you know, who's lived through say the late eighties, nineties, and obviously up to now. And then when you go into the depths of, of what's there available to you and you watch these fights, and uh, I suppose I can only thank the Lord for, for things like YouTube, to be honest with you, for as much as absolute rubbish that goes on to YouTube, there's some absolute brilliant stuff when it relates to oh, boxing. Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. I imagine, I'm just I'm just quite thankful that that is available to people like myself, who's, who's in his mid-30s, who's, who's able to be able to look at a lot of the stuff that is available to, to see there, because a lot of the stuff that, that people have, they have it in their own collection. And unless they put it into that public domain it might never see the light of day. So we might never get to see the likes of, of some of these older fighters yeah. ever come to the forefront. So it's great when we've got people with experience who've lived through it, who are able to write about it, who are able to sort of document their their time covering this type of stuff. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And I look forward to doing a part two. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be many, many more stories to come. Um, thank you for obviously telling everybody about the books. And I'm pretty sure like once... They've had the opportunity to go through it. I'm pretty sure you'll uh, you'll definitely get some more orders for the Bivins book. I know that for sure because there's a lot of there's a lot of Bivins fans out there that that want to know a little bit more about him. That that's not already out there in the public domain. So it'll be great to uh, it'll be great to get people sending it your way and and getting them to read that book and finding out all this information that maybe they didn't already know or some of these little stories that you was able to get from from Jimmy himself. And that's that's the beauty of it all. Yeah. That's right. You know, uh, when when you get get to know somebody like I knew him, and and we you know we go into a boxing dinner or something, and and usually most all the time by car, and uh, he would open up a little bit, you know, and tell me stuff, you know, and it wasn't like you know being a reporter and going up to the guy, oh, what do you think about, you know, <laughs> he he would just start talking, you know, or we'd go to a dinner and. And he'd tell me stories, you know, like we, we go, I'll tell you one more thing and I let you go. But we give you an example of this. We're at a boxing dinner in Rochester, New York, and Sandy Sadler's there. 
And uh, in fact, uh, you'll see in one of the books there, there's a nice picture of, of Jimmy, Sandy, and myself. And things that you would never, never think about. You think about wins and losses and, you know, things that happened during the fight and whatever. But Jimmy was at a training camp somewhere up, up in New York. And in that same training camp was Sandy Sadler. So they must have been training for a fight card up there, you know. And so I guess they, it was kind of like a kind of a rustic kind of a place they were staying in, the quarters where they slept. And Jimmy maintained that Sandy found a snake outside and put it in his sleeping bag. So, so Jimmy, like a lot of people, maybe even more so, he wasn't afraid to get in the ring with Archie Moore five times, but he was, you know, definitely afraid of snakes, screaming bloody murder. And of course, I guess Sandy was standing over on the side laughing like a hyena, you know. And he took his belt out of his. He claimed he took his belt out of his pants and went and whipped Sandy's butt like like a child, you know. So we're at this dinner. Sandy said we're still in pretty good shape then. I guess he had, late, the last few years, he kind of faded, you know, mentally and whatever, but he was still pretty sharp there. We're getting ready to take this pitch and we're talking. And I said, hey, Sandy, Jimmy tells me about this time he took, took a belt to you in the training camp because you put a snake in his sleeping bag. And he didn't deny it. In fact, he had kind of a weird grin on his face, kind of like almost busting out laughing. So I do believe it was true. But those are the kind of stories that would pop up with, you know, times you wouldn't even, you know, I never tell you about the time. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was, it was, it, it, you know, it was good times. He was a good man. Um, he was very generous to my family and me. He would always invite us to dinners and things, you know. Uh, uh, so, I mean, uh, when, when my son, who's 41, by the way, Mr. 30-something, uh, he, he was born, and Jimmy lived clear east, quite a ways from me on the other side of Cleveland. And he and his wife came over, and they had all these gifts. They had never been to my house before at that time. I mean, things for babies. For you know, just It was unbelievable what they brought. Another time he came over to... Uh, a cookout, uh, a barbecue, and uh, brought all, uh, they, his wife said, what can we bring? And we said, nothing. And he brought all this meat and he was cooking these ribs on the, on the grill. And I just, it was just, just the kind of guy he was. He was amazing. He was an amazing guy. But, uh, but just, I'll just wrap it up then uh, and just say, obviously, thank you again for for speaking to myself and obviously telling the story for myself uh, and the listeners and the viewers and it's been great to have you on and I'm pretty sure you'll be back at some point uh, in the future to tell us a few more little stories uh, a few more bits of information uh, and probably the next time we speak to you we'll be hopefully talking about your new book great all right that sounds like fun yeah thanks very much thanks very much for coming on thanks John I really appreciate appreciate it very much
Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.